Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the historic Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one. They had a literary club, they had lots of arts activities, they put on lots of drama, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time, they put on uh, vaudeville shows. We'll discuss food history as a way of understanding Florida's past. By 1935, the Keys were all but depleted of stone crabs, and Florida enacted its first limitations on the harvesting of the crustacean. And we'll talk about the new list of our state's most endangered historic sites. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1922, a group of student singers from Duval High School performed Sally, Won't You Come Back to Our Alley on radio station WDAL. Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one, was established in 1877. Like many buildings in downtown Jacksonville, the school was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1901. Tim Gilmore is an author and writer for jackspsychogeo.com. He explains that Duval High School was rebuilt in 1907 and expanded quickly. By 1920 and 22, uh, uh, the school built two uh, additions, an addition on either side. And uh, just five years after that second edition, 1927, uh, was Duval High School's last graduating class. During its 20-year heyday from 1907 to 1927, Duval High School had an active student body. In addition to having a variety of performing arts groups, Duval High School won the state football championship in 1913 and the state basketball championship in 1926. Tim Gilmore. That's really interesting to me looking at uh, <laughs> school yearbook quotes. Uh, they were they were. Uh, very literary, you know, um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, 
often grandiose, um, you know, you would, would probably refer to a lot of their selections as purple prose. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the young men uh, sometimes referred to them, you know, their quotes referred to them or compared them to Alexander the Great. And so you can see kind of the, the gender norms of the time period too, and what, uh, you know, the conquest that was going to be expected of the young men. Uh, and then, you know, with the young women, uh, you know, that they should be fair as a rose in May and things like that. Um, but they did have, uh, they had uh, a literary club, they had lots of arts activities, they, they put on uh, lots of, of drama, um, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time, they put on uh, vaudeville um, shows. And so you can look in some of the old yearbooks and see, um, uh, you know, not only were they uh, using songs from um, the, the biggest plays on Broadway at the time, um, but there was, there's also um, inevitably minstrelsy involved and students wearing blackface and, um, you know, things that um, really resonate with us now, obviously, but um, did not so much with white students at Duval High School in this um, Jim Crow time period. Students came to Duval High School from all over the city, but many walked to school from Springfield, an affluent neighborhood with Victorian-style homes. By the mid-1920s, the demographics of downtown Jacksonville were changing. 1931, this is just four years after Duval High School closes, uh, but it gives context to the changing uh, demographics in the city at the time. Uh, the comprehensive city plan of Jacksonville referring to Springfield said uh, many former residents during the past four or five years have left Springfield to live in other areas where property is restricted uh, and that meant you know by race uh, and it said tenement dwellers have entered Springfield and the property generally speaking is depreciating and when this state starts its rate of progress is rapid so um, what was happening in uh, Springfield would happen uh, more generally in uh, historic um, center, center city neighborhoods in the decades to come, but kind of got an early start in, in some ways in Springfield. Tim Gilmore believes it's the demographic changes around Duval High School that led to its abrupt closure in 1927. Jacksonville already had what is now an historic African-American high school. The Stanton School dates back to the 1860s, but its current red brick structure was built in 1917. Stanton School uh, in uh, La Villa, and, um, which is a little bit to the west, and generally people think of La Villa as part of downtown now. Uh, it was in its time, uh, first its own town, <laughs> and then uh, its own uh, community and district, uh, and it was a dense um, uh, people think of it as a historically black district, which it was, but it was also uh, really diverse. Uh, there was a Syrian population there and a Chinese population there and a Cuban population there. Uh, but Stanton High School um, was, uh, you know, the, the segregated black high school. And this, of course, is where uh, James Weldon Johnson was was principal for a time period. Uh, and um, and Stanton High School is uh, 
standing empty right now and not in very good shape. And its board has recently asked city council for uh, for help. Um, it's it's hard to see exactly what might happen with Stanton um, at this point, but uh, it would be an enormous loss if Jacksonville couldn't do something with it. Following its closure in 1927, the Duval High School building was repurposed several times. It was briefly a junior high school in the 1940s and was then used as administrative offices for Duval County Public Schools until 1971. By 1980, the former school became the Stevens Duval Apartments for the elderly. In 1980, it reopens as a um, senior residential space. And what's really fascinating about this is that some of the uh, students who had actually attended Duval High School ended up living in the building, which <laughs> was at this point converted to uh, Stevens Duval Apartments. Um, and, you know, I guess if you had great high school memories, that, that could be a good thing. Um, if not, it, it might sound like hell, you know. Um. <laughs> high school reunions for former Duval High School students were held at Stevens Duval Apartments. Martha Wells was the last living student from the last Duval High School graduating class of 1927. She went to the University of Florida and became a teacher and principal, working for Duval County Public Schools for 40 years. The oldest uh, former student of Duval High School uh, just passed away a few years ago. Um, and uh, she was 102 years old when she died in, in uh, 2011. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's something kind of haunting about looking at the, uh, the final yearbook, which I use a number of images uh, from in a recent story um, that I wrote about this at jackpsychogeo.com. Um, there's something kind of haunting and uh, looking at their senior quotes and um, the drawings of a person who later became a prominent artist and was daughter of a prominent artist. You know, and then they had these odes to the school and saying that, you know, they, they referred to the school as as a mother and that, you know, they were for the rest of their lives, they'd be carrying the forth the memory of, of um, you know, their the, the mother's school. And, uh, you know, this was the last year, uh, 1927. And so um, uh, those memories, of course, pass on when people pass on. And so. Uh, 2011, 102 years old, the last uh, Duval High School student passed away. The Duval High School building lives on thanks to architect Ted Pappas, who renovated the neoclassical structure after it was saved from demolition. Tim Gilmore. Ted Pappas is uh, he's a beloved figure here in Jacksonville uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, he has done some really significant um, modern designs in the city, but he's also done uh, some really important historic preservation work. His career has always kind of, um, you know, tackled both things, uh, went back and forth between both things. Uh, he uh, uh, designed a, a very um, kind of mid-century modern, but also looking back to ancient Greece, uh, stru a structure for uh, the Greek Orthodox Church here in, in Jacksonville. Uh, and he's, he's probably best known for a very brutalist um, piece of architecture, uh, the um, 
Singleton Retirement Center, uh, uh, which was done, I uh, forget the exact year right now, but it was late, late 70s, right around 1980. But he also uh, was responsible for renovating um, Duval High School, um, Old St. Andrew's uh, Church, which was built in the, the 1800s and is now um, used by the Jacksonville Historical Society for its uh, meetings and its programs. Um, the, uh, the Seminole Club um, near uh, the center of the city, um, lots and lots of buildings. It, it kind of feels like you can throw a baseball downtown from one of the, the historic structures that Ted Pappas has, um, you know, saved in, in one way or another to the next. Uh, so uh, his career has been prolific and has looked both forward with, um, uh, you know, interesting um, modern designs and um, constantly focused on saving the city's historic architecture as well. Tim Gilmore is author of books on Jacksonville history and writer for jackspsychogeo.com. He spoke with us about Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org for a variety of entertaining educational resources, including archived editions of this program and our public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Choo-choo to Broadway, boo Cincinnati. Don't get icky with the one, two, three. Life is just so fine on the solid side of the line. Biff, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight. Puriakasaki wants some seafood, mama. Shrimps and rice, they're very nice. Hold tight, hold tight. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we all know that Floridians and visitors to Florida love to eat our local cuisine. Some historians use food as a lens for understanding the past, right? Absolutely. Although academic interest in the history of food is relatively recent, Food history is part of every family and culture. Recipes are handed down from generation to generation, often with the admonition not to share it outside the family. Just try to get my grandmother's roll recipe. I will happily share the rolls, but not how to make them. The academic interest in food history takes many forms. The cultural history surrounding food, gender history in food, kitchen gardens and women's work, the transition from canning to purchasing canned and frozen foods, and the environmental history of food, just to name a few. Florida's food history is similar to that of other southern states, but also very different, as its food production and multicultural influence from the Caribbean and Gulf have always shaped the foodways. 
Two articles that have appeared in the Quarterly in recent years demonstrate the ways which historians integrated the history of food with environmental history, tourism, rural foodways, women's history, and black history to understand the importance of food in communities and households. Now, much of Florida cuisine is seafood-based. How is food related to environmental history? The first article we're talking about today, Eating the Claws of Eden, Stone Crabs, Tourism, and the Taste of Conservation in Florida and Beyond, by Nicholas Mink, appeared in spring 2008. At the time, Nicholas was a Ph.D. student in environmental history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nicholas received his Ph.D., and entered an academic career. But today, he is CEO of Sitka Salmon Shares, which markets small boat, fisherman-caught salmon from Alaska. In February 2020, he appeared on the Larry Miller Show for Wisconsin Public Radio to talk about small boat fishing and a documentary film, Last Man Fishing. He is the executive producer of the film. His article for the quarterly fits well with the public radio broadcast. Although stone crabs have been part of the diet of Americans from North Carolina to Texas, they have become associated with South Florida and the constructed paradise of winter tourists. As Mink noted, they became part of the Edenic narrative that created, promoted, and transformed the physical landscape of Florida. He focuses his article on the iconic restaurant Joe's Stone Crabs, which was founded in 1913 by two Hungarian immigrants, Joseph and Jenny Weiss. Eating stone crabs at the restaurant became an essential part of the winter tourist experience before World War II, a gastronomic masterpiece that had been procured in nearby Monroe County. Of course, as word spread, the wonders of stone crabs, the harvest increased dramatically. By 1928, fishermen were harvesting more than 100,000 pounds of the crustacean annually. By 1935, the Keys were all but depleted of stone crabs, and Florida enacted its first limitations on the harvesting of the crustacean. The post-World War II tourists, wanting the authentic Florida experience, expected a stone crab meal also. Other restaurants joined Joe's in meeting that demand, and the pressure on the harvest of stone crabs increased. Fishermen ranged farther from Florida shores, and both state and federal agencies enacted stronger regulations on the harvest. The taste of stone crabs, which became identified with Miami, was not unique to either the city or South Florida. But the myth was stronger than the reality and useful in the creation of paradise. It was, however, a myth with environmental consequences that required state and federal regulation to assure the continuation of the authentic tourist experience. Now, food and kitchens are an essential part of the life of a household. What does food tell us about household relations? In 2011, an article by Rebecca Sharpless titled The Servants and Mrs. Rawlings, Martha Mickens and African-American Life at Cross Creek, is not primarily about food. Rather, as she explores the complicated relationship between Marjorie Kenan Rawlings and the women who managed her gardens, chickens, cows, hogs, and kitchen, she provides insight into the production, preparation, and serving of food at Cross Creek. 
Professor Sharpless is at Texas Christian University and is nationally known for her work in agricultural history and oral history. She was president of the Oral History Association in 2006. One of her books, Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, which was published in 2010, fits with this article. Rawlings and the two black women, Martha Mickens and Adela Parker, could not have been more different. Rawlings bridged the gap between isolated farm life and more sophisticated life with her New York publishing friends. Mickens was a countrywoman who had the knowledge for living on the land. It was her work that enabled Rawlings to live the farm life. She raised the chickens, milked the cows, butchered the hogs, and planted and maintained the garden. She had the close environmental knowledge that permitted her to gather wild fruits and berries and prepare the meals that resulted from a day of hunting or fishing by Rawlings and her friends. She never met Rawlings' expectations for setting a proper table or preparing delicate sauces. Idella Parker was college-educated and had been employed as a cook for wealthy families in Boca Raton before coming to Rawlings' kitchen. Parker had the knowledge and skills to prepare the sophisticated meals that Rawlings demanded when she entertained friends from New York. The preparation of meals and the table presentation, both for daily life and entertaining, were sources of frustration and conflict between the three women. In drawing our attention to the kitchen conflicts, Sharpless shows us that food is more than sustenance. Even in an isolated farm kitchen, the dynamics between the person who provides the food and the one who prepares and presents the food for consumption can be a struggle for power based on knowledge, race, and social class experiences. Well, Connie, now I'm going to have to go make myself something to eat. Thanks. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Each year, the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation identifies the most endangered historic sites in our state. Holly Baker has more. Now you can tell a building down, but you can't erase a memory. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2021's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Christine Dalton is an urban planning consultant and a trustee of the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. She told me more about the 11 to Save program. Each year, the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation has an 11 to save list, which highlights the 11 most endangered properties in the state of Florida. And we announce this list at our conference each year. 
So we recently announced this on July 21st, this current list. The 11 properties on the list are selected by a committee after reviewing applications that are submitted to us from the general public. So applications come from all different entities, um, nonprofits, individuals. There's a property that is historic and you're concerned about it. You can apply for the property to be listed on the 11 to save. Once the property is listed on the 11 to save, that begins the Florida Trust advocacy and education efforts. And what we do is we just try to get as much information out there about the threat to the property, the history of the property, and we try to get involved and see if we can have any influence on helping to save the property. So that is kind of the idea there behind the list. Over the next 11 months, we will feature the individual properties and resources on the Florida Trust's 11 to save list from 2021. This year's list represents endangered historic resources in Florida's Duval, Holmes, Jackson, Lake, Marion, Martin, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and Volusia counties, covering hundreds of years of history and a variety of cultural resources. This year's list has really kind of varied properties. We have abandoned African-American cemeteries statewide, downtown Bonifay Historic District. We've got Great Oaks, which is in Jackson County, beautiful, beautiful structure in Jackson County. We've got the House of Refuge at Gilbert, Spart, and Stewart, Old Stanton High School in Jacksonville, Old Town Commercial District in Lake Worth, Opalaka City Hall, that's in Miami-Dade County, Ormond Beach Riverside Church, also South Shore Community Center, which is in Miami-Dade County, and Reddick Presbyterian Church. The 11 to Save program empowers preservationists and preservation groups in communities across Florida to protect historic resources in the state. As Christine Dalton explains, it's the members of the public who nominate the historic properties and resources on the list. Regional ambassadors with the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation assist applicants with the nomination process. Christine Dalton is a regional ambassador for Region 4, the central region of Florida. The Florida Trust has regional councils throughout the state of Florida, and each regional council has a regional ambassador that covers that area. So whatever counties are in that particular region, there is a go-to person, a board member of the Florida Trust that would be the contact. One of the roles of the ambassador is to kind of communicate throughout the year with the applicants for the 11 to save property and to make sure that we're being updated on what's happening with the property and able to get involved to help out in any way that might be possible. And we do this by education, advocacy, promotion through social media and our magazine. And we also have uh, gone and attended meetings to advocate for these buildings. So we've gone to um, council meetings and community meetings. So there's a lot that the regional ambassadors can do to assist with these efforts. To learn more about the Florida Trust and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. On the website, you can also nominate endangered properties and resources by clicking on the Take Action tab at the top of the page. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.